Good morning, everyone. You know, there seems to be something inside all of us that just longs to make sense out of chaos. And, I mean, we certainly are experiencing a very chaotic time. The facts, as we know and, and rely on to try to make decisions, often seem to be just, well, unknown. And what we do know so frequently changes, right? People are asking things like, how serious is COVID-19? Maybe it's not that much worse than a bad flu like the H1N1. Maybe it's way more deadly than we thought. Who even knows? I read an interesting meme recently that expressed the struggle of living in the present reality. I won't read the whole thing. It was quite a long list, but here are some of the better points. Important, it said. Masks are useless at protecting you against the virus, but you may have to wear one because it can save lives. But they may not work, but they may be mandatory, but maybe not. This virus can kill people, but don't be scared of it. It can only kill those people who are vulnerable or those people who are not vulnerable people. It's possible to contain and control it sometimes, except that sometimes it actually leads to a global disaster. Gloves won't help, but they can still help, so wear them sometimes, or not. There is no shortage of groceries in the supermarkets, but there are many things missing. Sometimes you won't need loo rolls, but you should buy some just in case you need some. Obviously, this, this came from Britain. Animals are not affected, but there is still a cat that tested positive in Belgium in February when no one else had been tested, plus a few tigers here and there. You will have many symptoms if you get the virus, but you can also get symptoms without getting the virus, get the virus without having any symptoms, or be contagious without having symptoms, or be non-contagious with symptoms. It's important to get fresh air, but don't go to parks uh, to go for a walk. But don't sit down, except if you are old, but not for too long, or if you are pregnant, or if you're not old or pregnant, but need to sit down. If you do sit down, don't eat your picnic. Don't visit old people, but you have to take care of the old people and bring them food and medication. If, if you are sick, you can go out when you are better, but anyone else in your household can't go out when you are better unless they need to go out too. You can get restaurant food delivered to your house. These deliveries are safe, but groceries you bring back to your house have to be decontaminated outside for three hours, including pizza. You are safe if you maintain the safe social distance when out, but you can't go out with friends or strangers at the safe social distance. The virus remains active on different surfaces for two hours or four hours, six hours. I mean days, not hours. But it needs a damp environment or a cold environment that is warm and dry. In the air, as long as the air is not plastic. The number of corona-related deaths will be announced daily, but we don't know how many people are infected as they are only testing those who are almost dead to find out if that's what they will die of. The people who die of corona who aren't counted won't be counted. You should stay in lockdown until the virus stops infecting people, but it will only stop infecting people if we all get infected, so it's important that we get infected and that some don't get infected. Okay, that, that's, that's a little bit humorous, but I, it... For me, anyhow, it really summed up just all of the, the contradictory messages and just how chaotic things, to be, things seem to be right now. I mean, people go in different directions when things get chaotic like this, too. Of course, one way that people try to make sense of chaotic times is by getting into conspiracy theories. There must be, there must be something, they say, that, that connects all of, of these dots, some dark underlying thing that will, will make sense of it all. 
Of course, some of those end up being even more complex than the actual chaotic situation itself. Another one that's really frequent among people of faith in particular is to try to understand how God in his sovereignty is at work in all of this, right? You, you know how this plays out. People ask questions like, is this global pandemic just more or less the random events of a fallen and broken world left to its own devices? Or is, is God more actively involved? Might he be judging us or, or punishing us in some way? Our text for today is Jeremiah chapter 25. We'll be spending the next couple of months looking at the book of Jeremiah. Obviously, we won't look at everything. It's 50-some chapters long, and some of those are very lengthy chapters. But we will look at some important texts, both texts that have to do with the Lord's judgment, as well as the hope that he holds out for his people. Jeremiah 25, and I'll read the first 14 verses. We'll hop around from this text into a few other ones, but this will be where we, where we park for most of our time together this morning. Jeremiah 25. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring against I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of bridegroom and the voice of bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then after seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them, according to their deeds and the work of their hands. This is the word of the Lord.
recognizing that many of us are, are not super, super familiar with Old Testament history, at least the specifics, let's take another look at the timeline. Now, this first one is the, the timeline that we looked at last week, which shows the broad contours of the Old Testament history from King David down to uh, the time that Judah went into exile. We have another timeline here that shows in greater detail uh, the decline of Judah in, in its final years as a kingdom. Now just a note, you may see some of these dates written as a year or two differently in some sources. For instance, if you have a study Bible in front of you now with notes, uh, they may differ slightly on some of these dates, being one year on either side or the other. Now sometimes that's because this far back in history we can't be as precise as we'd like. I mean, most scholars believe that Jesus was born in something like the year we call 4 BC rather than AD 0. Another is that sometimes the events in question span more than one year, kind of like an academic year or, or a sports season. And so some sources will refer to the beginning of the event and some will refer to the end. So that's why you may see the dates slightly different than what's in front of you. So a bit more specifically to look at this timeline. Look, this is the context for Jeremiah's ministry. Manasseh was Judah's worst king. He was the literal worst, and he ruled for 50 years or so. Uh, his son Ammon was king very briefly after him. And then Josiah was king. He was, by most evaluations, the best king that Judah had since King David. He followed the Lord wholeheartedly. He got the temple back in working order. He led the people in following God's law. But tragically, his life ended prematurely when he went to fight Pharaoh Necho of Egypt at the Battle of Megiddo, where he was killed and Judah was defeated. Now, Josiah was a good king, but his reforms did not last. Those that followed him went back to the old pagan ways of idolatry and corruption. Briefly, Judah was a vassal state of Egypt, but then Egypt and Assyria were in turn defeated by Babylon in 605 BC at the Battle of Carchemish. From that point on, Judah was under Babylonian domination, and it was only a matter of time and a couple of rebellions before that domination was total. Jeremiah had started his prophetic ministry during the second half of King Josiah's reign, as you see on the timeline here, but it was really during this period of national decline under Babylonian domination that he spoke God's word to God's people. And in this text, it says this was right at the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's rule. So right after that time when Babylon defeated Assyria and Egypt and started to rule over the land of Judah. So now with our passage today situated in history, because we always have to remember that the Bible is a historical book. These events really took, really took place. They really happened. These aren't just, uh, you know, morality stories or, or nice kind of fables. This is rooted in historical events that are known and studied by historians and archaeologists. So, having just mentioned archaeologists, let's dig in and see what there is to learn from this text. Now, one of the main themes that runs throughout the book of Jeremiah is Israel's persistent, stubborn, hard-hearted, settled determination to not listen to God. Look at verse 3 here. Jeremiah has been telling them this stuff for 23 years already. 
during, during the latter portion of the reign of King Josiah. And I'm sure even though Josiah was a good king, there were many people in this time that were only going along with his reforms because that's what they were supposed to do rather than from a place of wholehearted obedience. And now that Josiah's gone, uh, they're just going right back into their old ways. I mean, just, just flip back if you want to Jeremiah chapter 9. Here's a good little catalog of, of the state of affairs uh, as it was with God's people. He says there, For they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to speak lies. They weary themselves, committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression, and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. And after all this time, Jeremiah's message has not changed. Stop worshiping idols. Stop living lives of rampant sexual immorality. Stop violently oppressing the poor. Back in chapter 25 here, look at verse 4. This isn't something Jeremiah just made up because he was cranky and angry or, or had some kind of a complex. With very few exceptions, they have never listened to the prophets God raised up to proclaim his words. This isn't a new thing with Jeremiah. Now, I don't own a set of noise-canceling headphones, but I suspect many of you, those of you that travel, well, who at least used to travel more than I do, might own a pair of these. Now, noise-canceling headphones are quite interesting. They work by listening to the ambient noise in an environment by using tiny little microphones built in. And then what they do is they produce a sound, a tone, that's, that's phase-inverted. That is to say, equal but opposite from the sound going on in the room. And in that way, they cancel that sound out which means that you can listen to your music or your podcast without having to crank the volume way up to overcome the ambient noise. Kind of like, it's kind of like Israel's leaders or Judah's leaders to, to be more precise, have always been listening to what's going on around them while wearing noise canceling headphones, at least when it comes to hearing from God's law. It seems to be how it was particularly in Jeremiah's ministry. Whenever he would speak a message from the Lord to God's people, and especially to the leaders of God's people, the king and the other national leaders would always have some of their own prophets around who would deliver an equal but opposite message to what Jeremiah was saying. So Jeremiah would say, guys, the judgment is coming. God is not pleased with how you are living. And some of these other false prophets would be like, it's fine, the Lord is going to bless us, this judgment is not going to be a thing. And in that way, they would just filter out Jeremiah's warnings, just like they were background noise, and they could totally ignore them. They'd do this year after year. And you can read about a kind of humorous, uh, specific incident in Jeremiah chapter 28, if you want to do that later today. But here, Jeremiah is pretty clear that the time is up, and that there is a direct cause and effect 
at work. Uh, the nation of Israel and, and Judah, continuing on after the United Kingdom came to an end, uh, they had a covenant with God. Judgment for disobedience was part of that. They disobeyed, living contrary to God's laws in idol worship, human sacrifice, flagrant sexual sin, greed, oppression, and all the rest. And when warned, they didn't turn away from these things. So the judgment finally came. And it was going to be 70 years of hurt for God's people. So look at verse 8. Therefore, cause and effect word. And because, again, pretty strong cause and effect language going on there. In this case, whatever it may have looked like on the ground, both the Lord's covenant with his people and Jeremiah's preaching on it and interpretation of it, it makes one thing very clear. And, and Jeremiah is very specific about it in this passage. You've brought this on yourself, he says. The Lord is bringing his just punishment for your disobedience and for your continual breaking of God's covenant. Look back to Deuteronomy chapter 28 if you want to see this all outlined well in advance. Now, do you see the words in there, devote to destruction, or, or some translations might have completely destroy in verse 9. This is an important Hebrew word and an and idea, really, that shows up in the book of Joshua a lot in the, the conquest of the promised land. This is what the Israelites were supposed to do to the pagan cities on entering the promised land. Burn the cities, uh, destroy it all. Now, that wasn't so much about just cruelty and domination for the sake of, of being cruel. It was, it was about the wickedness of these nations and the need to, to purify that from the land. But now, excuse me, now it, is, it has come full circle. Full circle. God's people, God's own people are so corrupt that he has to send someone else to do that to them and purify their sin and their wickedness from out of the land. Now, interesting, and this is the sort of thing that I think some people are picking up on in our situation. Let's look at verse 10. There's a picture there of how this purging judgment will sound and will look. It looks like emptiness, and it sounds like quiet. There won't be any sounds of normal life, joy and gladness, right? Social and probably religious life has ground to a halt. Weddings, family life has ground to a halt. Uh, millstones, so commercial and, and agricultural life, ground to a halt. And there won't be the light of a lamp. In other words, things are dark and empty in this picture of judgment. And if, if that sounds familiar, I mean, I can't help but agree with you. By now, we've all seen those pictures of, of major cities deserted, huge freeways with basically no traffic on them downtown commercial areas that should be filled with people, completely empty, aside from maybe some pigeons. We've, we've all known the reality of, of this in our own lives. Uh, some of us have even had weddings and other family celebrations uh, that had to be canceled or postponed. I mean, I grieve whenever I look at this picture uh, that I took of the Hildebrand Chapel on the night our board met to suspend church gatherings. 
for the foreseeable future. So of course, it's, it's pretty easy to see the similarities between Jeremiah's time and our own. Society seems to be drifting, if not headlong running, away from God. And as I just mentioned, the kind of images he described sound eerily familiar. So, so is COVID-19 a judgment from God? First of all, let's talk a bit about the differences between Israel's situation in the Old Testament and our own. Because we need to understand that Israel in the Old Testament was both a political and a religious entity. This tended to be how most cultures worked in the ancient world, where you would often get a king that was, was also worshipped as a god, or at least as a messenger of the gods. But that's not how things work now. And if you look, if you read Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy, you'll see that the covenant had rules and regulations that govern things that we would call religious or moral or ceremonial, on the one hand, as well as things that we would call civic or political or crime and punishment type stuff, on the other. They didn't really distinguish. Both of these were just part of their covenant life before God. You know, so, so that was how it was. And it included both the provisions for Israel's worship and as well as the provision of a land to live in. This was their covenant life. All that to say that when God called Israel to account, or when God's prophets called Israel to account, he was calling both the, the church and the state, if you will, to account, because they didn't really make a divide between those things. Their national covenant included both. Now, the New Testament makes it very clear that Christians are a distinct entity from whatever nation or whatever empire they might happen to live within. It, the New Testament talks frequently about we're exiles, we're strangers, foreigners here, our true citizenship is in heaven, and so forth. So we have to be clear on the differences between then, God's people, and now, God's people. So we're clear there. We can't draw a one-to-one -one equivalency between Israel and, and, and Canada or Western civilization, nor can we draw a one-to-one -one parallel between Israel uh, then and the church now. But what if we just look at one or the other? Is God judging our society well, we just said, our society doesn't really live under a national covenant with God the way Israel did. But, you know, passages like Romans chapter 1 make it clear that some basic aspects of morality before God ought to be known even by those who don't have God's law or are not bound in a formal, co formal covenant sense to God's law. The opening chapters of Romans make it clear that even with this baseline knowledge, humanity's response pattern has always seems to be even to suppress that bit of knowledge and just go their own way, do their own thing, follow after their own desires. So is God judging our society? Well, it's, it's hard to say. You know, these, these massive events, great catastrophes and disasters and wars, they don't, they don't distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous. Everybody just kind of gets swept along or even swept away in it. So some careful application and, and interpretation is necessary. But I mean, nevertheless, it is hard to look at our society and not conclude that 
at least we're deserving of God's justice, God's judgment, God's even punishment. I mean, look around. The, the rampant and perverse sexual sins that we aren't just even supposed to tolerate, but even celebrate as, as good and normal. And just consider the, the massive amount of the internet that's now dedicated and devoted to the storing and the distribution of pornographic materials, many of which exploit women, there's human trafficking involved, even, even abuse of children, violence. I mean, look at the, the medicalizing of, of killing the unborn and the aged or the infirm. Look at how much of the wealth of the nations of the world every year is poured into making more weapons to kill people. Look at how so much of our economy, which, which we need, of course, nevertheless is driven by, by greed and, and envy. And look at how much of that is further compounded by being built on the, on the backs of oppressing the poor. I mean, we may not worship idols of, of wood and, and stone, metal, the way the ancient pagan peoples did, but we certainly do worship gods of entertainment, celebrity, leisure, and the list goes on. Even by a very basic Romans 1 kind of a standard, it, it's hard to say that we aren't deserving of God's judgment for our stubborn determination to just go our own way. But this is where I love that passage from, from Luke 13 that I looked at very briefly last week. Jesus says, don't be so quick to assume that you are in the right and everyone else is in the wrong. You know, don't go around so eager to point the finger at the wicked world out there that you forget to look at what's going on in here. Look in here, both in terms of your own life and in terms of, of the church. So is God judging us? I think there's at least a strong possibility. You know, and if nothing else, I think we have to do better. I think we have to do better than to just see this as a random and basically meaningless event that, you know what, we just need a scientific, medical, political, economic solution and we'll be fine. We'll get out of this, no problem. Business as usual, we'll be back. We can just carry on as before. That would be to miss the point. One of the most important things that we need to look at as we consider God's judgment outside of the church or outside of his own people versus within his own covenant people is the end result. The end result as God intends it to be, to be more precise. When it comes to God's people, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, the desired result that God wants to bring about all the time is, is cleansing or purification or refining of his people rather than just strictly punishment or, or condemnation. Look at the end of this passage. Eventually, even though God has used Babylon as his tool for bringing judgment, even against his own people, Babylon remains evil and God will judge them for their evil. Even though he used Babylon to accomplish his purposes, judgment is still coming for their evil. And that's, that's the, the end goal. That's the consequence. That's as far as it goes for what is truly evil. But 
if you still have your Bibles open, flip back, maybe just turn over the page to Jeremiah chapter 24, because there he outlines his purposes for God's people who are going or have gone into exile. Looks much the same as it does in chapter 29. He says there in, in 24, this is so wonderful. So I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return to me with their whole heart. Friends, that's the point. And it's a beautiful point. When God brings hard things on his people, if we want to call that judgment or even punishment or maybe discipline, the point, though, the point is always to refine and eventually restore. I know I might sound like a broken record at this point. I've been saying this day in, day out, week in, week out since, since the middle of March, but we have to grapple with this. We have to ask diligently and earnestly, how is God refining us in this time? How is he intending for us to be refined, to look different, and what will restoration look like on the other side of this? We should be asking ourselves these sorts of questions at any point in our lives when challenging circumstances come. It's just that right now, right now we're all in the same boat and we're all kind of looking at one another, hopefully not just panicking and wasting this opportunity, but maybe starting to ask one another, what's God teaching us? How will we look different? What things are we going to choose not to go back to the way they were before? And what things are we going to pursue more earnestly, more diligently? I mean, God was pretty clear that his Old Testament people we're going to look much different after this, this cleansing, purifying, refining time that he was sending them into exile. He talks about giving them new hearts so that they will desire after him and, and follow his commands finally. Not because, not because a good king like Josiah came along and kind of forced God's people to obey God's laws. No, but because God was going to give them a new heart where they would actually want to do this and love to do this and finally Love the Lord their God with all their hearts, all their souls, all their strength, all their mind. You know, you only know your own hearts. This is going to look different in some ways for each person. But you know the things that are there in your heart that you know perhaps are not good for you, but you keep doing them anyway. Only you can answer the question of whether whether there's things in your heart that are just preoccupied with the things of this world and the distractions there, rather than, than burning brightly after the things of God. Maybe God is judging us. I think in some sense he is. Let's not see that as, as condemnation. Let's see this as an opportunity for refinement. And in that refinement, let's see opportunity to know him more deeply and have our hearts brought into deeper and closer alignment with his will. Again, only, only you specifically know uh, what that's going to mean for you. Or maybe 
at the level of your family, some of the things that you had that, that maybe were not the priorities that God wants for you, where you were getting distracted, where you were getting off track. And perhaps this is providing an opportunity for a course correction, right? Maybe, maybe as a family, you were simply too busy with things that didn't really matter a lot in the long run and were neglecting some things that were more important. And maybe, maybe you're starting to get that now. I would encourage you, make a commitment as a family. Have somebody to hold you accountable to that even, that you're not just going to go right back to the way things were before. That'd be to repeat a lot of the mistakes that Israel made um, rather than finding that new heart that longs after God and wants to follow him out of a desire of love. So I'd encourage you as a way to respond to this week, really really dig into this, really discuss, really ask, not just at a surface trivial kind of small potatoes level, but at a, at a deeper, diligent, earnest heart level. You know, what priorities in my life as an individual, our life as a family, however that's going to look for you, what needs to be different? What, what should start being different now in order that when this, this time is over, we come out of it with hearts that really and truly have been purified. And then seek the Lord for that. Seek his, his power, seek his goodness, seek his spirit to be poured out on you in this season. And give you the heart that he longs for you to have. Amen.